Welcome to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky. I'm your host, Scott Lane, and in this podcast, I will bring you a fresh perspective on all things ESG. I'm joined by experts who will provide a clear step-by-step path for companies to integrate ESG at every level and conversations that will challenge you to abandon your current thinking and use the principles of ESG to drive business performance, build value for customers, and protect the community and the planet. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Hear All Voices podcast brought to you by Speaky. My name is Scott Lane, and I'm your host for today's session, and I'm going to be joined by a leader in the HR community, Alice Bromwich, who's from an organization called p and Magnolia, based in the United Kingdom. So firstly, let me extend my welcome to you, Alice, and thank you for joining our podcast. Thank you for that introduction, Scott. It's nice to be here. So one of the things we've talked about in the Hero Voices podcasts is how to integrate ESG into an organization. And what we've talked about previously is that it requires quite a number of people across the organization to be involved and to be part of a team in order to truly implement and execute on ESG. What we found over the years is when we implement ESG programs, there's a distinct set of people that are common across most of the areas. And one of those groups is the human resources department. And the human resources department is integral into establishing ESG and particularly in relation to the social parts, the S in ESG. And that's going to be the focus of today's Hear All Voices podcast, where we focus on the S in ESG and we talk about how to engage with human resources, how to get them involved in ESG, and then we're going to be talking about some of the key topics within the S and ESG in order to talk about how to engage with HR and help build some great ESG programs which are actually valuable to your business. So before we get started, let's chat to Alice and find out a little bit about Alice, your background and how you came into working and leading a key organization in the HR space. So Alice, talk us through a little bit about your background and how you got involved. I affectionately call myself a HR geek and mean that in the nicest of ways because I realized quite early on when I was looking way, way back at uh, what degrees to study at university, that I didn't go down a traditional route of geography, which is where I was supposed to be going towards. And I opted for business and HR. And so my route sort of of academically studying the subject started, you know, really with an interest at 18. Over the years, I have gone on and studied more just because that's the sort of person I am. So I got to the point where I really wanted to do my master's in HRM. And in the UK, we have a professional body called CIPD, which is an accreditation. And so part of that as well is getting qualifications. So I like to study the theory behind it, but actually it's also working within that area. So my first sort of early career wasn't working in HR, actually. It was working with senior leaders as an EA. And I think that didn't give me a traditional route into HR either. I didn't work my way up, 
But what I did is work with very senior people, making very senior decisions in sales, marketing sort of areas. And so that's where I kind of thought, well, this is where how I want to lead. That, that kind of leadership style sort of came from those early days. And then I sort of skipped up a few levels by working on HR projects, which were incredibly interesting and give you exposure straight away at sort of managing or dealing with change management programs, which impact sort of large scale groups of people. So yeah, my career sort of went from there really. For myself, I enjoy working in businesses where I can help with the growth stage or the scale up stage. I've been within a business running a function in that capacity and it was really fulfilling to see a team and a company grow over a period of time and having the ability to influence how that is as well. So yes, the last three years I've now been heading my own HR consultancy up and doing just that with lots of different clients so yes I'm fortunate Scott that I found something very early on in life that I enjoyed doing and I've been able to sort of have a career out of it. And what's interesting about your career which is relevant to our topic today is that you've worked at senior levels of organizations and you've been involved in human resource projects. That's really the topic of what we're talking about today because implementing ESG is certainly an executive level process and it involves working across the organization And it definitely involves bringing in expertise, especially from human resources. So my first question to you is, as you work with organizations and your observations generally, are you seeing human resources teams getting involved in ESG matters? Are you seeing them picking up some of these projects? Are you seeing them as leaders? Are you seeing them as laggards? Where does human resources fit into the ESG spectrum at the moment? It's a really good question because I'm not sure it's on enough people's agendas. I think it's, again, when we talk around compliance, I've been in rooms where health and safety gets ping-ponged around the organisation or crisis management planning. Nobody really wants to take ownership. And so do I think it's on enough HR leaders' agendas at the moment? Probably not. However, a lot of the work that we do in HR at a leadership level is influencing change. So depending on the voice that that HR professional has within that environment or that culture, it's a brilliant opportunity to start bringing that into the boardroom and getting it back onto the agenda. Because naturally, we look after the internal stakeholders in the business. We look after the employees. So it's not a huge step change, but it's maybe just focusing a little bit more on joining up the conversations, I think, with other areas of the business. Scott, I think you're right. I think there's a huge opportunity for HR at the moment to be able to step up and sort of take ownership of this conversation. And do you feel that they're not getting involved to the level that we might hope because they simply don't have the instruction to do so? Is it because they don't have the capacity or is it skill set based? Or why do you think it is that HR may not be as engaged in the process as what uh, we might expect? I think it must be a combination of things. It's been a difficult ride in the HR world for the last couple of years. I think the hangovers from COVID have impacted hugely. There's been a lot of change that's had to be managed within many businesses. So do I feel that maybe some are still firefighting? Probably. Do I think there are some that looking ahead 
to now we've got a new ways of working in some organisations. It depends how quickly they've adapted to that change, really, or they've we've gone through that and now business as usual. Where is a company now? And have they, like you say, got the capacity to look forward? I think one of the big things that has influenced is the the impact of technology so where we have lower levels and I mean that in the sense of the lower jobs within the HR sort of team structure technology has played a big part in taking some of those transactional elements away so I think the opportunity is actually influencing at a high level but actually now starting to put in the skill set and the training at the grassroots of HR of how we can bring this conversation in because of course those people are in those roles now but in five, 10 years time, they're going to be the leaders of the future. So actually maybe introducing the skill set at that level would be beneficial for many businesses. And you mentioned some key words there about sort of the the future of both the organization of HR and also the company, and you use the words business as usual. And I guess my question is, do you think that the land of ESG and integrating the sorts of social elements that form part of ESG, do you feel that those elements are indeed going to become business as usual in the next five to 10 years? I think they need to be because when I think about the subjects that it it covers, you know, I know we'll talk about this just a bit more, but we have a duty of care as employers to look after our people. And that is not just on the fundamental point of providing a role and paying people. This is around the environment that they work in. So if we go back to the fact that employers already have a duty of care, that this should be everyday working practices now. It's just that I don't feel it's joined up enough. So when we, again, if we were to do an analysis of what is already being rolled out in a business from a HR point of view, the likelihood there's lots of touch points already coming into ESG. It's just that they've not joined that tool up. So yeah, when I say, you know, business as usual, actually it is around culture. This is around duty of care. A lot of the subjects that we will look at, Scott, around harassment and things like that, this policy practices, they're protected under employment law already. So maybe it's just changing the terminology of how we refer to all of this. And maybe the focus then is on ESG, because then we're working with others within the business to sort of help kind of rally it around, the message around, really. Not sure if that answers your question fully, Scott, but I think that it feels natural that HR should be part of this conversation. I think you're right. And a lot of our listeners are indeed from the compliance, legal governance areas who are starting to look at ESG more broadly and are starting to get involved in leading that dialogue across their organizations and are looking to call in other resources from across the company. And I think the duty of care piece that you talked about is actually very important to the company and also to the compliance and legal teams. We understand that duty. We understand the importance of it. And I think you're right in using that call to action as being the duty of care obligation to really gather those people together and start working on some of these programs. Because I do think it is it is part of that duty of care to the organization. And indeed, recently, I, I mentioned that wouldn't it be great if directors of companies not only had a fiduciary duty or a duty of care to the shareholders, but they also had a duty of care to the employees and they had a duty of care to the planet. Perhaps then we would see significant change 
if we made directors and senior people accountable for that duty of care or that duty of care extended out to some of these additional stakeholders. So totally in agreement with you. You The duty of care is one of the key drivers that hopefully will enact change across this area. We look at risk registers, don't we? And actually, who owns that risk register? (laughs) It's the senior team, isn't it? It's on our heads to be able to make sure that we manage risk across the business. So yes, Scott, why not extend that, hey? (laughs) And one of the things I mentioned is about building the teams to help ESG. If you could give our listeners one or two points of advice, how should we best engage with human resources? What are the triggers that we should be using to encourage them to be part of the solution around ESG? Are there particular things that we should focus on or that we should stay away from or keywords that we should use to try and get them as part of the team? Often a lot of pieces within a company fall into HR's sort of remit when it shouldn't or could be somewhere else. And the reason I I say that is that I can see there being a bit of a barrier to somebody, for example, coming from a compliance background, coming and saying, I need your help because we need these numbers or we need something else. So actually, we get called on a lot to support the other areas of the business. So I think it really depends on the culture of the business that you're working in. But taking a few steps back and explaining why those numbers are needed, how we can work together, or actually just asking, what do we already gather in the business in terms of metrics and data? The next employee voice survey that goes out, can we put a few questions in that lean us towards this conversation? Can we work with you already to look at, I don't know, the retention rates? Has anything come up within exit interviews that indicate that the changes that we can make within the company are falling, I don't know, around environmental impacts, for example. Have people used their voice within the company already to express an interest? So I think it's, again, how you getting HR on board, I think is very much depending on how HR is seen in the business already. If HR has a seat and a voice at board level or in a senior team, the likelihood is those conversations are happening. If they haven't already and they're only seen as transactional or they're only seen as the people who sort the problems out, then I think it's going to be a much harder conversation from somebody from compliance, for example, to come forward and and start that conversation. But there's a lot of information that's usually held within HR teams. So it's maybe going back and asking what's already in place and asking how that can support the agendas or the strategy the wider company is looking to implement. It's a great comment. And at Speaky, we're all focused on data and how do we get the data that we need? You know, it's sometimes in the company already, it's sometimes hiding somewhere. And sometimes we need to generate that data and we need to build programs so that we collect data, we generate it, and then we do something with it. We add information to it from multiple sources and we determine some insights from that data by which we can then redirect or we can direct our programs to achieve better results. So you're right, it's, it is about accessing that data and pushing things forward. So we certainly agree on the approach. I want to turn to some of the key areas now under the S in ESG, where typically the human resources department get most involved. And I want to start off with a fairly broad topic, which is around diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
It's clear that DEI is taking fairly significant strides around the world. We hear that it's being talked about in organizations. We hear that there are new initiatives across companies to drive equity and inclusion. I'm interested in seeing what you think about the organizations you work with and whether or not you think the DEI initiatives making an impact do you think that they making significant change? Do you think that they driving forward in making diversity a significant part of the business that we consider inclusion across the organization? What are your observations? Is diversity, equity and inclusion working? So, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer, if I'm honest, Scott, because it's very emotive in terms of subject. There are and has been a trend of companies creating, investing in DNIEI specialists to come into businesses to maybe set policies or look at strategies to support looking at the culture and then putting change in, which is fantastic. And I'm not taking away from that at all. But what I would like to guess comment is that what happens with that longer term? Because I don't like the reactions to trends. And yes, it's been a lot of commentary across the world. And bringing it and talking around diversity and inclusion is great. Let's not just push it behind a closed door and forget that it's there. We're aware of an issue, but let's not address it. It's brilliant that we are addressing these conversations. I just feel quite strongly that some companies are paying lip service to it. It ticks a box if we get challenged, oh no, we have this policy or these are the initiatives that we've put into place. But actually, the everyday conversations haven't changed. No one's challenging those everyday practices, which are not including everybody. No one is challenging the fact that we have senior teams across the world that sit from a point of privilege and are not diverse enough. And This is a slow burner for myself. And if we talk around inclusion, again, for myself, I often refer to myself as an ally of inclusion. I'm not a specialist. I definitely will not sit here and say that that's what I'm able to do. But I am able to pull on lots and lots of contacts who are specialists in neurodiversity or specialists in race or specialists in just bringing in um, gender conversations into, into businesses. So I feel like from my point of view as an ally, that actually talking around inclusion or challenging when we don't see inclusive practices is something that we can all do. So do I feel companies are are changing? Yes, I do think companies are changing. But for myself, it's always proof is in the pudding. If you're receiving grievances or if there's underlying tension within a business, which is still related to issues around inclusion, then you're not really changing your culture. And one of the trends of governments around the world tends to be to pick on a particular issue like diversity or gender or racial equality and have companies report out on a set of numbers in order to, in their view, add transparency to the issue and to make companies report out either to a regulator or at least on the internet the numbers, some of the key numbers around their diversity programs. Do you feel those initiatives that 
many governments seem to be going down or standards organisations seem to be requiring reporting around these topics. Do you feel that is valuable? Do you feel that those reporting of those numbers is useful for people? Do you think it drives change, drives behaviour? Is it something that organisations look at and think we're embarrassed by what we're doing, therefore we need to improve? Do you feel those reporting of those initiatives is adding value to the process? I think it adds something to the conversation. I feel that if the stats are showing something negative within an organisation, how many organisations would be bold enough to publish that? I'm not sure they would. I think that there would be some manipulation to those figures. So I think we probably need to view those with a pinch of salt and consider them. So does it help start conversations elsewhere? Yes. But again, if we're talking around equal pay, it's generational that male females do not get paid the same for the same roles. If this was something which reporting on actually affected change, that equal pay was just there, we didn't need to be having these reports to show, you know, how many senior females we have in in leadership teams. That for myself might be a better use of time. So yes, Scott, look, all all quantitative data, it has, has definitely a use Absolutely. But I think we also need to listen. And I think we also need to have conversations around what that is showing. The larger organisations that invest a lot of time and money into producing these reports or the reports you know, that the governments require you to produce, I think they do show an insight, especially to smaller organisations. It might help them. It's like a ripple effect, isn't it? If a larger organisation is investing in these reports, and then showing how they potentially then change their practices or, or look at those areas, then it might just spark interest for a smaller company that hasn't got the time or the investment to do that. So they do have value. But again, I, I think always with an element of common sense needs to be applied. Yes, it does appear that one of the challenges is that there is a headline approach where people tend to read the headline pieces and ignore the substance in the sense that they don't look at the organization and the context in which it operates, the locations, its size, its complexity, and they don't sometimes factor those elements into some of those numbers. So for an organization that may operate in one country, it may lack certain types of diversity, and that is unfortunately perhaps a reflection of the market in which they operate. So it is sometimes a little challenging, I think, to look at those headline numbers and to draw significant conclusions from them. But I tend to agree that it's a step in the right direction as long as it's couched in a way that sets it out clearly and provides the the classic asterisks to explain the numbers and to give direction, I think, where a company needs to say, this is our goal, this is our objective, this is where we are now, and these are the steps that we're going to take to get there, and this is who owns it, and this is our expected time frame. I'd much rather see some direction around that than simply seeing headline numbers. So I hope the regulators, who might be some of our listeners, think through what the reporting obligations might be to make those reports actually valuable to the stakeholders that are actually going to be reviewing them because it's those stakeholders that the reports are being prepared for, not the government themselves. Another issue which we 
want to touch on is it's been almost five years this week or this month since the Me Too movement really started in the United States and it's taken on a significant change across the globe. To what extent do you see harassment, discrimination practices being improved in the markets that you're operating in? Do you think the Me Too movement has made any significant change? Has it brought these issues of harassment, discrimination and sexual behaviour? Has it made a difference? Well, I would like to say yes. I would like to say that people coming forward and using their voices to challenge unwanted behaviour has made a difference. I think the fact that we're even discussing it is a positive. Do I feel that companies fully understand the risk? Look, a solid HR function will have harassment and bullying, conduct, policies, practices in place. When you're faced with some bringing a grievance or overhearing something which is inappropriate within the workplace, actually you can have these policies there, but at What I'd like to see is how the procedures, how the investigations are conducted. I'd like to see what the outcome of those are. I'd like to then see longer term that actually that that person who's brought the grievance around harassment hasn't been impacted further down in their career. So do I feel that having the Me Too movement conversation has been beneficial? Yes. But do I still feel that we have more than one incident of harassment or bullying within the workplace? Do I think it's gender related? Yes. Do I think that people challenge enough on the language that's used and the tone that's used within the workplace? I I don't feel that those challenges are there enough on the everyday. But the fact that we can discuss openly around harassment again goes back to the employer really understanding their duty of care because again you go to work expecting to be in an environment which is a safe environment a safe working environment now that doesn't mean just you know the functional part of being in an office it means being safe to be able to say the things that you want to say in a meeting, if you're getting a response which is a sexist response back again, or an assumption that if you're a female that you would be acting in a certain way or doing a certain thing. I have been in more than one meeting where I'm always the person that's asked to put the kettle on because I'm the only female in the room. This is low lying. (laughs) And at the time, you kind of, oh, it's fine. But actually, it's not really fine. And even if the person doesn't intend it to be a sexist remark, I think that there's an environment where others... Nobody else stands up and says, do you know what, I'll do it instead. And I I guess where I'm going with that is that do I feel that talking about it has been useful? Yes. Do I feel the everyday practices within cultures are challenged enough? No, I don't. And do you think that's leadership? Do you think that that's a significant leadership gap in the sense that our leaders today are simply not stepping up? They're not stepping up to take on that additional role that fulfills the duty of care and provides that duty of care to both the employees and all of the stakeholders. Do you think it's a leadership gap that people are just not stepping up? 
I think there are leadership gaps, yes. I talk around wanting people to be bold. I talk about leaders, I'd like them to lead with compassion. And I think a lot of leaders are not leading that way because their focus is on profit. Their focus is on reporting, like we just talked around. Their, their focus is on the wider conversation with the stakeholders. And they seem to become a bit disjointed with the everyday of what's going on. It's a real challenge in a leadership role to be able to have the breadth of hearing or knowing really what's going on on the factory floor versus having those conversations in the boardroom. It is possible. It absolutely is possible. But it takes a very strong leader to also challenge somebody else within your senior team and know that that challenge will be accepted as something that is professional rather than something which is uh, personal. And so uh, it's, you know, the dynamics of teams, Scott, is always an interesting one to, to look at. But do I think there are enough leaders who are standing up and saying, gosh, we know we've got a problem in this business. Now let's make a huge change. And I know this is going to annoy a lot of people and I know all of these things, but we're going to do it anyway. There are a handful of leaders that lead that way. There are not enough. And I think you're right when it comes to leadership and one of the key elements of our view at Speaky is indeed the title of the podcast is about hearing all the voices. And we chose that as our slogan because of this very point, because we feel that even if an organization was to build a strong ESG set of initiatives and it started to execute programs on ESG, it would never be able to truly become a leadership position in ESG if it wasn't able to hear all voices, if it wasn't able to accept the feedback or accept the whistleblowers or accept people putting their hand up and saying, this is unacceptable, or we need to look at this differently, or we need to change the dynamics in our management team. If they're not able to hear all voices, they meaning the leadership and the board, then it's going to be very tough for them. It's going to be very tough for them to establish strong ESG principles because the S is simply not able to be met if the organization lacks that leadership around hearing all voices. It will never be able to self-improve. It will never be able to learn some of these key skills around workplace practices or human rights or employee relations or diversity, equity, inclusion, harassment, discrimination, gender equality, racial equality, thinking about bullying in the workplace or mental health issues. It's really going to struggle if an organization can't open up its eyes and open up its ears and its arms and take that feedback. And I really think your comments and your approach around the duty of care is a really key descriptor because what I think it does is it says to organizations, this isn't a nice to have. It's not something that you're doing because you've got a legal obligation to doing so to report out some numbers on ESG. You're doing it because you actually have a duty of care. I mean, you have a duty of trust. You have a fiduciary duty with your organization or employees and your stakeholders to at least give them a safe environment in which to work. And so we're not asking very much. 
but we're asking to have a safe environment where people can thrive and can actually do their jobs effectively, taking into account all of those stakeholders. So I really love the way that you brought the duty of care into that ESG dialogue and the role of human resources. I think it's really commendable and thank you for introducing us to that concept and also to reinforcing just how important it is. You're welcome. And I think this is sometimes where we all get bogged down, don't we, thinking that we should be doing the things which are the right things to do or we should be doing it in the framework that people kind of expect us to be doing it in. But if we strip really back what relationships are around, it's around trust. And we are, as employers, asking our employees to trust us. And that really only comes through actions. It doesn't matter what your values and your behaviours and your mission statements are. It's how you behave, how you react, how you support that makes the relationship between your employers and your employees, your leadership teams. This is really the crux of it, isn't it, Scott? It is. And as they often say, trust is not a right. It's something that's earned. And both the organisations and its stakeholders need to certainly recognise that trust is important, but it's something that is earned and it's something that can be lost very, very easily. That brings us to the end of our time together. So firstly, again, Alice, thank you very much. And thank you for the team at Peony and Magnolia for supporting the cause of spreading the ESG word throughout the HR organization and getting the HR teams involved in ESG. They're an essential part of the puzzle that comes together as part of ESG. So we're very excited to work with you and to hear all the challenges that you and the HR teams and have in bringing together ESG and really making it valuable to all the stakeholders. So on behalf of our podcast and all of our listeners, thank you very much for getting involved today. Thank you for inviting me along, Scott. So for all of our listeners, thank you very much for this edition of the Hear All Voices podcast. My name's Scott Lane, and I look forward to catching up with you again on our next podcast brought to you by Speaky and Hear All Voices. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky with me, Scott Lane. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We will be back with a brand new episode in a few weeks. Thank you.